Welcome to Walls of Time, field interviews with the best in bluegrass. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Walls of Time Bluegrass podcast. I know it's been a while. Uh, You know, we had that thing called a pandemic, which will uh, definitely slow your roll. There's no doubt about it. Uh, Also, uh, I got married last year. This is Daniel Mullins. Uh, Yeah, so uh, my girlfriend is no longer doing Samson's hair care ads. That would be my wife, Miss Santana Mullins. Love her dearly. And so uh, getting settled in uh, to getting married and moving a couple of times all these life changes plus the pandemic kind of slowed our output for the walls of time bluegrass podcast a little bit but we're back i've got a bonus episode i'm going to present to you today uh we'll have another special treat before we roll on into season three in the coming weeks In addition to some changes in my own life, we have had a few changes on the Walls of Time Bluegrass podcast as well. Uh, With his duties with Mountain Home Records, uh, Ty Gilpin is uh, no longer with the podcast, and that's okay. We wish Ty the best. Mountain Home's doing some great things and some great music, so be sure to check out all the the tunes and artists that they have coming out. And They are uh, big movers and shakers in the world of bluegrass. We're grateful for it. We are grateful to Ty for his help on the first two seasons of the Walls of Time Bluegrass podcast. This is a very special interview that I am uh, honored to present. This uh, marks a couple of firsts uh, for the Walls of Time podcast. One, it is uh, the first time that I did an interview where we ended up having some major technical difficulties that I was not aware of until I got back home. Yeah, this is an interview I recorded at the International Bluegrass Music Association's World of Bluegrass in 2019. Yeah, it's taken this long to get it up to par, but it was such a special interview, I wanted to make sure we... uh we presented it to you so you could enjoy the content. The quality is not what you're used to hearing. Uh, we had an issue with one of the microphones that was not picked up until uh, we got it back in the studio and started diving in. But the content is great and it's extra special because this is another first. It's the first time we have featured a posthumous interview. It's an interview I did with none other than Mr. Bill Emerson. I did it the morning after he was inducted as a member of the Bluegrass Music Hall of Fame, which is a really special opportunity for me and a really special opportunity for our listeners. I hate that there was a technical issue, but uh, so special to have that time with Bill Emerson. And it's a little bittersweet hearing this interview now. Uh, but I uh, we got it tidied up the best we could. Thanks to Paul Harrigal for his help. Uh, but it took a while. Had to go through and do uh, quite a bit of uh, magic to get it up to the quality that you'll hear today. But I believe if you're a bluegrass fan like I am, you'll appreciate the content and getting to enjoy a sit-down interview with Mr. Bill Emerson. Listen to Bill's banjo my whole life. Uh, of course, his work with Jimmy Martin, the Sunny Mountain Boys, is legendary. You just go listen to Tennessee from Jimmy Martin, and you'll hear the powerful five-string banjo of Mr. Bill Emerson, but his work with uh, Cliff Waldron, his work with the Country Gentleman, and then with Country Current, the U.S. Navy band, uh, is just so remarkable. He was such a Southern gentleman, and it was a real treat to get to talk with him about uh, his career in bluegrass music the morning after he was inducted as a member of the Bluegrass Music Hall of Fame. Fitting to present this interview this week, because this week marks the one-year anniversary of the passing of Bluegrass Music Hall of Famer Bill Emerson. Let's take a trip back in time, enjoy a great conversation I had with Bill Emerson in Raleigh, North Carolina, the fall of 2019. Thank you. Now, Mr. Emerson, uh, congratulations on your induction into the Bluegrass Hall of Fame. It's well-deserved and been a long time coming. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate that. I've been... Playing music for 66 years, it's all I ever wanted to do. So I consider myself a very lucky man. You you mentioned last night, you told us the story of, of how you got your first banjo. Why don't you tell our, our listening audience here on the podcast the same story you told us last night? Well, I lived in, uh, I was born in Washington, D.C. and lived in Maryland, not very far from Washington. And there were no banjo players in my part of the country. Uh, it was an urban 
upbringing, you might want to say. And uh, I saw Alex Curry, a friend of mine, holding that banjo and had that bow tie neck on it, that white head. And I saw that, I said, that's the prettiest thing I ever saw. Said, what is that? Five string banjo. And just the name, five string banjo. So I want to get one of those and learn how to play it. I went down to, uh, I think I bought it from Sears Roebuck. It didn't even have a back on it, real cheap. Maybe a $20 banjo. Got home and I couldn't figure out what to do with it, so I tied it across the handlebars of my bicycle and I rode down to John Duffy's house. He lived about a mile away from me. And I knew that he knew a little bit about bluegrass because he played the mandolin. And I'd see him around the school and stuff like that. And he said, well, he, he put this pick on his finger and another one on his finger, put this thumb pick on there and, and I'll draw you out some chords. And he did, and I put that thing back on the bicycle and rode home and I was off to the race. I've been doing it ever since then. One day when I put it down, I'd, I would play and play and play. I'd, I'd play all night until the sun came up and it, when it was uh, lunchtime at school, I'd go out in the car and had it in my car when I was in high school and practice and practice and it just it was an obsession and it still is. I just love to do. Who were some of your earliest influences on the banjo? Well, back then there wasn't anywhere near as as many as there are today, but uh, Earl Scruggs, of course, uh, Ralph Stanley, of course, and Don Reno were the main three, and then I learned the name of some of these other guys, I might hear bluegrass on the radio. They would just, a lot of times, just play a half a tune and break into the commercial or something. I was always frustrated because they didn't name the people who were playing the music. You know, Mac Weisenbaugh, who's playing the banjo? And they didn't tell you, but later on I found out about Rudy Lyle, and Wayne Brown, and some of these other guys who played banjo. But basically, Scrubs and Ralph Stanley and Don Reno. Pretty good start right there, wouldn't you say? <laughs> you mentioned, you know, John Duffy living in your area and him showing you your first licks on the banjo. How long after he showed you those first licks on the banjo did you and Duffy and the gang uh, form the Country Gentleman? Because you were a founding member of that band. It was about uh, two years, two and a half years, something like that. Actually, I was playing with Buzz Busby in the Bayou. Boys. I don't know if you're familiar. Yeah, yeah. But uh, he was a real dynamic guy, an amazing mandolin player, and, and a good singer, and, and really knew the music, and I learned a lot from him. And, uh, he was real big in the, in the D.C., Baltimore, Maryland area. TV show, a daily TV show. Oh, wow. And I would skip school and go down to the bowling alley and ask him to turn on the TV over the lunch bar there and watch his show. And got me in trouble. But, yeah, we were, I was working with Buzz, we were playing in a little place over in Bailey's Crossroads, Virginia, and Buzz, after the job was over, Buzz and Eddie Edcock was playing guitar at the time, and Eddie and uh, a couple other guys decided to go to North Beach, Maryland, because the uh, places down there stayed open all night. Oh, wow. Yeah, it just opened up in the morning enough to sweep them out, and it opened up again. And they had slot machines, and so you could gamble. So they decided to go down there, and I thought, nah, we got to want to go home. So I went home, and they had a terrible car wreck on the way down. They had a concrete bridge abutment, put them all in the hospital. Oh, man. So when I went to see Buzz the next day, he said, Bill, he said, please get some guys and hold that job because I'm going to need the money. So I went down to John's house and, and talked to him and explained the situation. He said, yeah, I'll play and also they Charlie Waller. And Charlie had worked with Buzz earlier. And so I got Charlie and John and the three of us went over there, no bass, and, and played the job. A little bit later on, we got Tom Morgan to play the bass, and that's how the country gentleman was born. Man, being in the D.C. area, how'd you guys come up with the name, the country gentleman? We were, uh, had a, we wrangled a daily, daily radio show in a place called WARL in Arlington, Virginia. And uh, they had a record library there. It was more of just a closet, you know, with records all jammed in. 
And John Duffy was in there pulling out records and looking at them. And he pulled out a Chet Atkins record and they called him the country gentleman. John Duffy said, right there is a name for our band. Just change that A from an E and then... That's right. We're not mountain boys, man. You know, we're gentlemen. <laughs> How long uh, did, did, did you and Duffy and Charlie Waller, how long were you with them the first time before you got the job with uh, Jimmy Martin, the King of Bluegrass? Uh, between two and three years. After I left Duffy, I worked for Bill Harrell for a while. And uh, then uh, I didn't know Jimmy. I never met him. But somebody gave him my name. And his, he needed a banjo player in New Jersey, and he called me up, and I met him on the Pennsylvania Jersey. I parked my car, got in his Cadillac, and went down to this place in East Patterson, New Jersey, the Carl Bar, and uh, met Paul Williams for the first time. He had a bass player by the name of Zeb Collins, and Jimmy and me. And Jimmy said, you guys go out there before I do, and you warm up the crowd. So we went out there and played for about 15 minutes, and then we called out the star of the show. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Good and Country, Jimmy Martin, and here he came. <laughs> Big cowboy hat, all that stuff. And I stayed with Jimmy about the first time, about three years, I think. And then I worked with someone, Red Apple, Frank Wakefield, and various other people. And eventually came back to the country. Eddie, Eddie went to uh, California to be a country music artist and uh, called himself Clinton Kodak and recorded as Clinton Kodak. And uh, so I was with the country gentleman played in. The first first job I played with him was at Oberlin College in Oberlin, Ohio. And I was talking to about a lady this morning about that. She's got a radio show in Oberlin, Ohio. And I told her when I... I went to help them out and uh, played Foggy Mountain Breakdown. The crowd just went nuts. So Charlie said, Bill, you need to come back and stay with us and we'll all be partners. So Charlie Waller and Bill Yates and Jimmy Goodrow and me were partners, equal partners in the country gentlemen. And I stayed with them a couple of more years and decided to go in the Navy band, U.S. Navy yeah. band. I just had an opportunity popped up. Just like a lot of other things in life, maybe you don't plan them, but they're there in front of you. The guy asked me if I'd be interested, said they want to start a country music band. I said, sure. So I talked to him about it and sounded awfully attractive, you know, a job with a good retirement and everything else. And I was getting kind of tired of playing, riding the bus everywhere and playing those bluegrass festivals. All that dust and mud in the same places. So I did. I, I, Left the country gentleman and enlisted in the Navy band. And I was there for 20 years. Wow. And I wouldn't have missed that experience for anything. I played a bunch of places like China and Sweden and played for presidents and played at the White House. All that sort of stuff that I never would have done otherwise. Yeah. Wow. You mentioned being a sunny mountain boy and Mr. Good and Country, you know, now knows the king of bluegrass. What were some, some lessons you learned about the business or unique experiences you had uh, early on working with a character that is that is unique of a personality as Jimmy Martin? Well, he was, and I found out real early that you did not want to uh, try to tell Jimmy what to do or tell Jimmy anything about bluegrass music because he honestly and truly was a bluegrass boy, and he understood the music, and, and he wanted it played his way. Yeah. And uh, He didn't want to sound like Monroe or Flatt and Scruggs or, or Ralph and Carter. He wanted to sound like Jimmy Martin. You a banjo player. You were. What he was interested in is if you could play his music the way he wanted it. Yeah. And uh, so I got, the, I got the hang of that right away. And... Uh, when I first went to work for him, we played at the Wheeling Jamboree in Wheeling every Saturday night. Yeah. And the first Saturday we went over there, before we went, I said, Jimmy, I we going to play at the Jamboree on Saturday night. And he told me, I forget, ain't nobody going to miss me when I'm gone. Several others. He said, what are you asking me that for? And I said, well, because I don't want to embarrass myself and I don't want to embarrass you. And he said, man, that's the best thing you could have said to me. And he tells that story. Or did tell yeah. for years. Magic player asked me, man, that's the best magic player I ever had right there. 
we did that. We played the Wheeling Jamboree, and, and then after the Jamboree we get this Cadillac and go play a Sunday at a park somewhere. One of the first jobs we had was at the Golden Nugget in, in Las Vegas. And we rode out there in his Cadillac all the way to Las Vegas, Nevada, and played at the Golden Nugget for a week. Wow. It was a real experience. And, uh, you know, Jimmy, Jimmy knew how the music ought to be. He was one of the greatest of all time. Yeah, absolutely. And I had my ears caught to him the whole time. Yeah. And he would tell you things like, uh, especially about singing, you know, how to phrase, how to talk. You sing just like you talk. Walking down the line. Not, not I'm walking down the line. It's I'm walking, walking down the line. You don't hear the word God. Walking down the line, just a little touch of a tone. Yeah, he would teach you stuff like that and said, Don't stand there and look at your banjo neck all the time, look out here this way to the right, and then turn and look the other way to the left. Let him see your face, you know, just showbiz. Yeah, because Jimmy was a showman, <laughs> he was a showman, and he knew how to sell it, and he knew how to play it, and he knew how to sing it. And another guy that really helped me was Paul Williams. Paul was playing mandolin with him at the yeah. time. And man, what a singer, what a player he was. Yeah. You know, he still is to this day. He stands 10 feet away from the microphone. Yeah. <laughs> it's just effortless. It just falls out of him like water. Yeah. It does. And so when I first got there, I didn't have a place to stay. And Jimmy said, well, you stay right in there with Paul. Man, sleep right in the same bed with Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Signed you right up there. Paul <laughs> shared the bed. Before we went to bed, old Paul, he fixed him up. Go in the kitchen in Jimmy's kitchen. He used to stay in Jimmy's house. He fixed him a big old sandwich, get some big, some light bread and smear mayonnaise on it, and get this Melvita cheese and put it on there. Bring her back and watch TV. Hey, man, you ought to get one in the kitchen with him. It was a real experience. Experience of a lifetime. And I learned so much. Yeah, it's what made me a good banjo player. Yeah. How old were you when you went to work with Jimmy? Well, let's see. I think I was about 20 years old. Yeah. And Jimmy was, was still in, in, in his prime form. Right at his top of his prime. Yeah. Man, standing next to that guitar was just like standing next to thunder. <laughs> thunder and lightning. And Paul Williams with that rhythm that he's banging on that old round hole mandolin. You know, yeah. Yeah. And he didn't need an F5. He played that old round hole, F4. Got the best tone out And that rhythm was so solid. Just amazing. There's nothing like it. When it was working right, your dad would tell you, he knows. <laughs> grandpa knew. Both of them great musicians. And uh, they're my heroes now. <laughs> Well, getting getting to play banjo on such hits uh, that Jimmy had, like Tennessee, it's one of everybody's favorites. I hear you calling me. And uh, you, you mentioned getting to work at the Golden Nugget for a week in Las Vegas with Jimmy Martin. That had to have been some wild times. It was wild, and we would alternate with uh, another act, I believe, Hank Thompson. He did play. He played out there a lot, didn't he? He played that. He was a staple out there. Had a big fan base, and we would alternate. We play six sets a night. Wow! Yeah, for like a half an hour, and then another act would come on half an hour. And those places out there never closed. They never, never locked the doors. They'd shut down the acts and things like that, enough to sweep the sweep the floor out, and they'd go again. And we'd go out there and start playing like at one or two in the afternoon. You get done after midnight. Six shows a night. Yeah. Wow. What well, What were some other unique places or unique experiences that you had as a Sunny Mountain boy traveling all over the country? Well, we were driving, traveling in a Cadillac. Jimmy had a '59 Cadillac, and uh, the way we would the way we would live on the road is. We wouldn't stop at motels. We'd never get a motel room. We had to shave. We'd go to a gas station where the water was free. <laughs> he would, uh, we would sleep in the car, and the way we would do it, there'd be three people sitting side by side. Jimmy would be on the right, 
and he put his head on my shoulder, and I put my head on his head, and then the guy on my left would put his head on my shoulder. So it was called sleeping on the heads, and we'd go down the road sleeping on heads, and then anytime we wanted, we wanted to eat, Jimmy would call it jungling, and we'd stop and get these little salt and pepper shakers that you could buy in the grocery store, little paper shakers, buy a loaf of bread and some bologna and get some mustard mayonnaise and some cheese and find us a picnic table alongside the road somewhere or just stop and eat it in the car. And that was called jungling. Jungling. <laughs> That's how we would eat. And uh, I had never played bluegrass festivals before. Because uh, when Jimmy won, we played the very first one in Finn Castle with Carlton Haney put on. And um, Jimmy at that time didn't have a didn't have a mandolin player, so a friend of mine that played the mandolin called Bill Torbert was his name. And Bill Yates played bass, and we went and played that very first bluegrass festival. And after that, so it was more and more and more and more to play in places I'd never been. Yet. Wow. The, so that that first bluegrass festival, you know, that was a brand new concept. Did people think Carlton Haney was crazy? Uh, no, I don't know. He got us all together. He said, "Boys," he said, "if you just..." Of course, Carter Stanley was there, an old Carter. There he stood in his white shirt. And he had holes. Burton his shirt from riding down the road, smoking a cigarette. Sparks blowing. Carter said, "Carlton, I need my money now. Living, you know." Yeah. Carlin said, man, there's not enough money to go around, but if you guys want to just stick with me, this is going to be the biggest thing that could ever happen. And of course, Carlin was a visionary. He was a salesman and a showman. And it was. It's yeah. really what happened. And he did the same thing when we when he had Camp Springs down there. Yeah. And uh, he got us all together and on everybody. So we all stick together. And uh, don't try to price ourselves out of the business. You know, we'll work together. We'll have a great thing going. And that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what he did. Yeah. What was the crowd like at that first ever Bluegrass Festival? Sparse. Really? But there was people there like Dave Grisman who came down from, from New York and Tony Trishka. Wow. Like that that I met there that I'd never seen before. Yeah. And uh, I'd say we had maximum 150 people. Wow. Something like that. But the, the opportunity for folks, like you said, that traveled from New York to see Jimmy Martin, the Sunny Mountain Boys, and the Stanley Brothers, what Don Reno was there, and the Osborne Brothers, everybody was there. So to, to if, if you were a Bluegrass fan, it was worth the trip to New York. You could get it all done in one weekend, right? Right, and see the greats. I mean, yeah. First-generation guys. Don Reno, can't say enough good things about him. That He was a genius, <laughs> absolute genius musician, and one of the nicest people you'd ever meet. And I went down to see him, and he had a trailer down there. Went to his TV show. They had a TV show every morning. And uh, down there in Roanoke, I went down there and visited with him. He showed me stuff on the banjo. I was just a kid, green, didn't know anything. I was a pest. <laughs> but he was a genius man. I remember he had a hell of a home sweet home. And on the other side was a thing called Green Mountain Hop, but home sweet home. I heard that on the radio and I almost flipped out. And then I found out later on that he heard the Hack Johnson in the Tennesseans recording of it, driving in the car, and he went immediately to the record studio and said, I gotta record that. And uh, Don didn't have mechanical tuners on his banjo. He played something with the tuning strings. He had to reach up there and pull the strings on the peg head. Wow. Yeah. And uh, he recorded Home Sweet Home and played guitar on it. So there's just the two instruments on there, guitar and, and five-string banjo on yeah. the recording. No fiddle, no nothing. Just dots all done. Wow. 
He was a genius. A lot of people forget that, you know, Don was such a great banjo innovator that he was also a guitar innovator for this music as well. You know, if you if you look at the books, he was the first to play what we now call lead guitar in bluegrass music. What a genius, yeah. I, I can't play any instruments, let alone be an innovator on two, so... <laughs> <laughs> you so you went from working from one character Jimmy Martin to another character Red Allen. I'm sure working with Red Allen and Frank Wakefield, you you saw it all. Boy, they were uh, both of those guys were great. Yeah. Uh, Red Allen, one of a kind, and just a great singer. I so enjoyed working with him. He's missing a finger on his left hand and uh, could still play the guitar really well. He lost his finger with, with trying to change the tire in a bumper jack. Fell off the bumper or something happened and lost his finger. And uh, he was a great singer, recorded all that good stuff with the Osborne Brothers once more. And I heard the first time I ever heard that, I was in school, and then I heard him do it live. It, it was hair raising. Actually, when the recording came out of that, uh, I was disappointed because it was a little bit modified from what I'd heard and a little bit polished from what I'd heard. From what you'd heard live on the radio. I heard live on the Wheeling Jamboree. I was still in school this morning stuff. When I was a kid, I'd hear Mac Wiseman on WBMD in Baltimore, Maryland um, with Ray Davis. I know you know who he was. Great broadcaster in, in that area, yeah. A real baby love, a real radio personality. And he had Mike Wiseman had a show on there. Had a banjo player named Wayne Brown. It always took me Wayne Brown. I want to meet him. Never did get to him. went through banjo players like this. But uh, it's so great to work up close with those guys. I met Earl Scruggs. Got to know Earl. He talks to you just like you and I are talking here. You know, and he's a shy, shy person, but once he got to know you, he's a great guy. There's some legendary Red Allen stories out there. What's some one of the most unique things you saw Red Allen do or say, or what's a, what's one of your top Red Allen and Frank Wakefield stories you'd like to share? Red <laughs> had a hot temper. Let me see yeah. that. Okay. Red had a hot temper. He was from down around Hazard, Kentucky, and uh, he was a hot-tempered guy. But his heart was as big as a basketball team, and so was his talent. And uh, I don't know. I could say I could tell you some stories, but I don't want to yeah. say anything that might be taken the wrong way. Absolutely. Frank Wakefield came to town. Frank was an auto glass mechanic. If you had a broken windshield, Frank could fix it for you. And uh, he was a, a Monroe-style mandolin player, only he took it to the, to the next five degrees beyond. And uh, had this old F5 that he found in the trash. He was driving down the road going to work one day. He saw the peg head of it sticking up out of a trash can. And, of course, it wasn't strung up or anything. And so he stopped his car and got out and got that mandolin took it, fixed it up, and that was his manual. And he, he saw Bill Monroe's mandolin and didn't have any finish. So he took a piece of glass just like Bill Monroe, scraped all the finish off of it. It's just raw wood. Man, he could play that thing. He was a great mandolin player. It still is. Yeah. I haven't seen him, but he's around. Yeah. When when did you and Cliff Waldron decide to get together and start a band in the D.C. area? I left Jimmy and came back to D.C. Jimmy wanted to move to Nashville. We were living up in Martins Ferry, Ohio, next to Wheeling there. And he wanted to move to Nashville and be on the Grand Ole Opry. And, uh, you know, I didn't want to pick up everything and go to Nashville. It was too far away from my home. Yeah. I didn't want to, so I didn't go. Wheeling area is still not too far from your home base, but Na Nashville's about double that. Right. Nashville's 750 miles, Wheeling's 200, so... Jimmy went on to Nashville and I came back to D.C. and I wanted to play music again and, and uh, Cliff Walden at the time was playing the mandolin and I booked a couple of little jobs 
and needed a guitar player, so I called Cliff to ask him if he knew anybody that played guitar. He said, well, I think I can play guitar good enough for you. So yeah. he did, and we did, and, and we decided to stay together. Next thing you know, we're making albums together. And Cliff's uh, a great guy. He's from uh, Joel, West Virginia. With, uh, with Emerson and Waldron, you guys, you know, historically added one of the, the all-time classic songs to bluegrass music from an unlikely source. How did you come up with the idea to turn Fox on the Run into what is now a bluegrass standard? Well, my wife had a job, and uh, she was working. I'd pick her up every afternoon, and uh, she sat right here smiling. And... Uh, <laughs> I had one of these little tape recorders, you know, about the size of a half of a shoebox with piano keys on it, you know. Yeah. And in case I hear anything good on the radio, I'd pop on record, you know. Yeah. And that thing came on the radio, Fox on the Run, it's like da 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 So I hit that key and it recorded Fox on the Run, man for man. And, uh, he was out of Europe, wasn't he? Uh, he was English. English, yeah. English, and another famous guy wrote this song. I think his name was Tom Hazard. And rock and roll guys, all the way. And, uh, They'd never heard of Jimmy Martin and Red Allen, had they? Uh, uh, didn't care to hear <laughs> Jimmy always told me, he said, man, if you're going to do something, it needs to be good, but it also needs to be different. Yeah. And that's how I came up with uh, Heidi Diddle and, you know, some of those other great, di different Jimmy Martin songs were different than other guys. Yeah, yeah. He wasn't singing about the cabins and the mountains and all that. The whole bunch of got. Yeah. And uh, so, so you got to be good but different. So we were looking for songs that weren't the normal, uh, you know, repeat of something that somebody else had done. We were yeah. stuff that people hadn't heard that we thought was good but different. And Fox and the Run, on the run, fit right in that. Yeah. Groove there. So we recorded it and recorded If I Was a Carpenter. Some of the other songs we did, I forget what they were, but uh, while we still maintain that instrumentation and that style of singing, so I tried to make them bluegrass. I tried to make them one that would catch people's ears, and it did. People, people caught on the Fox on the Run in a big hurry. Then when I went back to work with the country gentlemen, they weren't recording. I said, well, I don't know, I already did it. <laughs> and I said, yeah, but you didn't do it with the country gentlemen. <laughs> Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was while with Emerson and Waldron, that gentleman who was inducted last night, along with yourself, into the country, into the Bluegrass Music Hall of Fame, Mike Aldridge first was introduced to Bluegrass Music fans, and he, he worked for you and Cliff in New Shades of Grass, correct? Well, you know, I, I, I'm aware of Mike. He was from the same area. He lived in Kensington, Maryland. I lived in Bethesda, about 10 miles apart. And uh, he was the first Dobro player I ever saw. And uh, he would just go and play at parties and stuff. And professionally, actually, he was a graphic artist. Worked really? In Star Newspaper, yeah. Wow. And uh, we had uh, Emerson and Walden going. We had a fiddle player. I thought, wouldn't it be nice if we had that Dobro? We could do a lot of Osborne Brothers style music with that Dobro in there. Yeah. And uh, so I called him up and got him to come in there. We were playing at a place called the Red Fox. There you go, the Red Fox. Yeah. <laughs> a place called the Red Fox Tavern. And he got in there and played Dobro and started working with us all the time. And uh, it was hard for him to do that because he had to get up in the morning to go to work. But uh, we'd, we'd play some places, I'd give him all my pay. Was his page to keep him in the band. Wow. Because I could see what he could do and what he could add to the band. And what a nice guy he was. Could you already tell that his style on the Dobro was unique and and just different than everybody else? He had a way of playing that thing. He played these little belts on it. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. You Dobro players out there will know what I'm talking about. These little bells. Yeah. I tell him, I always call him Uncle Mike. That's a good way to get him. Uncle Josh. <laughs> Here it goes. 
was on the mic. I was making But yeah, I, I recognize that, uh, that he was, you know, he was related to the guy that played Dobro with Jimmy Rogers. No way. Absolutely. He, wow. Great uncle. Yeah. Played Dobro with Jimmy Rogers. So it's in his blood, you know. I, I knew that he was going to be a good one. And uh, then later on, off of the, uh, with the country gentleman, we played a place out in Warren, Ohio, a park out there. And there was this kid on stage playing the, what the song they were playing was Help Me Make It Through the Night. Remember? Yeah, great old country song. And Phil player would go, and then he would answer. On that dobro, man. I heard that, I said, man, just listen to that kid play that dobro. And uh, it was Jerry Douglas. Yeah. So He was probably, what, 16, 17, somewhere around there? High school. Yeah. I talked to his dad. I said, man, we really want, we're getting ready to do an album in New York City, and we want this guy to play dobro for us. And uh, so he did. He went there and played on that Vanguard album. Yeah. Yeah. That had Don Quixote and all that. That one, what, Remembrances and Forecasts? Or before that. The, the one before that. Okay. It was just called The Country Gentleman. Okay. It's on Vanguard. It had Ricky Skaggs on Yeah. Jerry Douglas on it. Me, Bill Yates, Charlie, and Dole. We went to New York to big times on Vanguard Records. And then me, me and our booking agent, Len Hallsquall, went up there and secured that contract with Vanguard Records. They were a big label, man. They had... Joan Baez on there. Yeah. Country Joe and the Fish and people like that. And uh, so we were thrilled to be on a major label, as per se. And, uh, and, and that came at a good time, too, because Vanguard was one of the big folk labels, and the folk revival was in full swing, so I'm sure that helped open some doors for the gentleman. Right, and absolutely right. So there we were, and we went in there and recorded the label of Vanguard Records. And, and at the time, we couldn't keep Mike with us all the time because he was working. He had his career and all. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we kept Ricky for a while. Kept Ricky till I left, and then he went off and did a big star himself. Pretty crazy that a banjo player would find two of the greatest dobro innovators of all time. I also consider myself a good judge of talent. Yeah. Jerry Douglas and Mike Aldridge and Ricky Skaggs, I think I did pretty good. Yeah, I'd, I'd say you did. I got another big talent sitting across from here. My son, Billy, grew up around this music. People like Skaggs and Tony Rice would come to my house and return to rehearse. Charlie Waller and Country Children and all that. And he grew up around it and listened to it. And, and uh, growing up, he was a baseball player. He, he played, uh, he was a pitcher and, and played for the Newark Buffaloes in the Frontier League. And did that for a couple of years, and then he came back and finished his college. And now he's a baseball coach and an athletic director. Wow! At high school in Fairfax, Virginia, and uh, he decided he wanted to put together a neighborhood band. So he got a bunch of guys to live around here and call them the, the, the NRJ band, Neven R. Johnson. <laughs> they play around in the neighborhood, and all of a sudden, man, they got this big following. And they're, they're out pulling everybody else in, the, in these places in town and these parks in town and stuff like that. And he said, hey, Dad, he said, no, I'd really like to record something with you while you're still young enough. <laughs> oh, yeah, you better record something. So I said, okay, let's go do that. So he ran some songs by me. He said, man, listen to this song here. It's called Leaving California. So that's a really good song, and you sound good singing it. Let's go do it. And then we decided to, to do three more songs. Got my band, and went in the studio and did them, and it came out really nice. Awesome. Do you ever feel like the hustle and bustle of life keeps you from accomplishing your goals and staying on track? Have you ever felt exhausted at the end of the day, but yet feel like you've accomplished nothing? Help focus on your goals and stay on track with a self-journal from Best Self Co. 
Whether you're starting your own business, a college student, or you're just feeling overwhelmed with day-to-day life, the Self-Journal is packed with tools to help you get more done. With features including daily planning, a 13-week roadmap for your goals, inspirational quotes, daily and weekly habit tracking, and a place to record morning and evening gratitude. Best Self Co. offers a line of productivity tools to help you accomplish more. Check out all of their products at bestself.co. Use code BLUEGRASS to save 15% off of your first purchase. That's bestself.co, code BLUEGRASS to save 15% off your first purchase. Hi guys, it's Adam from Samson's Hair Care here. I wanted to let you know that when you use the code BLUEGRASS on our website, samsonshaircare.com, BLUEGRASS will save you 10% and go to support this wonderful podcast, The Walls of Time, sharing the history and stories of bluegrass. You mentioned going back to work with the gentlemen. They were just the top of the heap. And uh, you all got to go to Japan. One of my favorite records is the Country Gentleman Live in Japan. What was that experience like getting to travel to Japan to play for bluegrass music fans on the other side of the world? It was uh, otherworldly. It's like being on the moon. I mean, it's so different over there. We had a good time going there. We flew to Spokane. And it was, it was you and Charlie Waller, Bill Yates, and Dole Lawson, right? Yeah. I think we flew to Spokane. And while we were in the air, we got our instruments out in the plane and played, and people clapping and hooping and hollering. Had a good time. And we got there, and uh, so different. We stayed at a place called, uh, we were in the Sheraton in uh, Tokyo. And we were there about a week or a week and a half, 10 days I think it was. We played a whole tour, toured all the islands in Japan, but one of the most interesting places was a place called Lost City in Kobe, Japan. And uh, Kobe is a place that's famous for their beef. Really? Right, for their steaks. And uh, they take it and feed them on beer. They raise cattle on beer. And uh, they have they. As their cattle are getting bigger, they beat on them with their hands to make the beef tender. And you've never had a steak like Kobe beef. Wow. And it's just a real interesting place. And this place called Lost City is just a small little nightclub. It's a small place. A guy by the name of Kenji was the boss. And they had bluegrass stuff all, looks like this place, bluegrass stuff all up over the walls. Confederate flags and banjos hanging here and there. And uh, the place was absolutely packed. That's just one of the places we played. But then on the other hand, we go to these big halls. Uh, like in Osaka, they had this big, huge hall just packed with bluegrass fans. And uh, you hit the stage, man, it's just thrilling, you know. Country and gentlemen. Bring out there in the crowd and go wild. And afterwards, they would would sign autographs. And they put these, they had this long hall in one place alongside the auditorium. The people lined up in that hall. We were down here in the end, at the end of the hall with this long table across the hall yeah. signing autographs. And they got to pushing, man. And uh, they were reaching out and grabbing and pulling button, buttons off our coats. Yeah. Wow. Like, the, like, like the Beatles. Yeah. You know? Wow. So it was a real uh, otherworld experience. It was something I really enjoyed. I made a lot of friends. Uh, one of them was here, to, here at this uh, shindig here, here at Atsuka. Yeah. Bluegrass 45 that came later. Yeah. And the same guy that was a head of our record company, Rebel Records, that got us over there, got the Bluegrass 45 over here, Japanese band. They did everything the country gentleman did. Did all our songs. Even did the comedy routines where we hold it. Yeah. Yeah. Slowed down, crippled grief and all that stuff. So they're great people, man. And they're great musicians and great fans. It was just such an honor to be over there and get to do that. You mentioned that while you're with the gentleman, they wanted you to, they wanted to dust off Fox on the Run again and make it an even bigger hit. Well, 
what were some other songs from that era that the gentleman did that were, were unique to bluegrass? Well, I got to play some instrumentals that we thought were different that you don't usually hear. One of them was yesterday. Yeah. You mentioned the Beatles, yeah. <laughs> and the girl and I were sitting up in the front of the bus and, and uh, just diddling through stuff and he started playing. I said, what is that? He says, it's a Beatles song, man, yesterday. So let's just let's work it up. So we did, we worked it up and went to the recording studio and recorded it. Another one was Cowboys and Indians, which is a, which uh, the band played there last night at the awards show after I told him, look, I haven't played since 2016, and I don't want to get up there and make a fool out of myself. I'm rusty. So why don't you just have the, you know, the house band play? So Charlie Cushman and uh, Jerry Douglas, who played on the original, actually the second cut, and uh, some other people there, some of the great musicians that were there, Cowboys and Indians. And one of the highlights of that was Mark Schatz taking a break on the power to fill out the chair. <laughs> I think of that when we recorded it. That was our couple of unique tunes. I mean, we tried to stay current. And, uh, you know, we did uh, Teach Your Children, Crosby, Sales, Nash, and Young Song. And a guy asked me one time, said, how long did it take you guys to work that up? I said, man, one time through and we had it. <laughs> you know, it's just one of those things that was easy for us to play. Yeah. Other songs you work on for two hours before you ever record them, and they're not good. <laughs> you never know. You mentioned, uh, you know, Jimmy Goodrow was there when you went back to, with the gentleman. What did the addition of Doyle Lawson to the country gentleman bring? Because that synergy was, was very unique in bluegrass history. Well, now both of those guys are great men. Absolutely. But different. Very different, yeah. Jimmy's got his way. Jimmy's got, he's got a style like nobody else, really. Absolutely. And Doyle, you know Doyle, we went to the same school, the Jimmy Martin School. Yeah, yeah. He played banjo with Jimmy. He played mandolin with Jimmy. He played guitar with J.D. Crow. And uh, me and Doyle fought like musically. Uh, Jimmy was a, a total different thing for me. Like I said, we worked out yesterday of all all things on the banjo and mandolin. That had to be exciting for you to hear new ideas, and, and I'm sure that helped helped to expand, yeah. Stuff off of each other, and Charlie wasn't so excited about that. Charlie said, I don't see why we got to keep learning all this new stuff. Man, we can just keep doing the stuff we did. People would be happy. That's what they want to hear. I said, no, no, no. <laughs> We're going to forge ahead. Yeah. Take advantage of what we got. Use it while we got it. And so we bounced ideas off each other. We came up with new material, stuff to keep the, the country gentleman in the eye of the, of the music listening public. And so uh, Doyle was different than, than Jimmy, and, and I thought like, a lot like Doyle. So glad to have him in the band. His rhythm was just like mine. His ideas were just like mine. He was a good singer and a great arranger. And uh, well, look what he's done since. Yeah. It, it, you know, so you got you and Dole that are former Sunny Mountain Boys, and Bill Gates on the bass. He yeah. played with Jimmy too, didn't he? And Bill Monroe. Yeah. So it, it probably ha having a kindred spirit in Dole in the band probably just just made it that much more exciting to go to work every day. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about Charlie, but it made me happy. What, you, you mentioned the opportunity to to play with the U.S. Navy band Country Current. When that opportunity presented itself, how hard of a decision was it to leave the country gentleman the second time and, and go to work for the Navy band? Well, you know, uh, you've been to Bluegrass Festivals. I'm sure you've been to many of them. And that's all I've been doing for years. And uh, they had an old bus, country gentleman did, and the thing would break down in the middle of the night, in the middle of nowhere. And, you know, a tire for that thing costs about $500. So if you had a flat tire or something blue, the thing wouldn't start or whatever, you know, it was a real pain. I woke up many a time and heard clanking and banging and running the bus. We were in some truck stop and some mechanic was working. Yeah. It was, it, 
it, it, it rained and it, it was muddy and it yeah. was dusty. And people would come up and knock on the bus door and yeah. try to sleep, you know. Yeah. It wasn't sleeping in cars like with Jimmy, but it's but but it, it still had its aggravations, yeah. It wasn't the Sheraton either. Yeah. <laughs> I, always thought, I always argued for that. I said, look, man, why don't we go out here and rent us two Cadillacs and put our names on the side of them and drive into the Holiday Inn and check in and, and go upstairs and take a nice shower and then go down and have a nice dinner and come back and watch TV and go to sleep next morning we'll track them, you know and uh, they wanted that bus they wanted that prestige of pulling into a bluegrass festival and here's this bus that's a country gentleman da 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 <laughs> like Flat and Scruggs had and like they saw other country stars had you know yeah they never would come around to the to the idea of the two Cadillacs or Lincolns or whatever, or anything. And uh, so we were stuck we were stuck with the bus. But so then when the opportunity to work for Country Current came about, and well, you could play the banjo without having to haul around in a bus, yeah. A place called King of France Tavern in Annapolis, Maryland. It's a real high-grade place, and Charlie Bird, the great guitar, jazz guitar player, played there. Uh, two or three times a week, and we, were, we got booked in there, and we were playing it. And a guy came in and said, I'm with the Navy band, and he said, I'm a fiddle player, a violin player with the Navy band, and we're, we're, we're going to start a country music band at the Navy band, and we're looking for a banjo player. And I said, well, come to the <laughs> I said, what's the deal? He said, well, why don't you come down to the Navy band in Washington and talk to the officer in charge and he'll explain everything. So I did. I went down the next day, went down there and met this uh, commander, and uh, he told me exactly what the deal was. He said, it's direct procurement, so you don't have to go to boot camp. And it's like we would hire a doctor. Somebody drives a bulldog or something. We have no way to train them. So we hire him for the Navy direct procurement, and we'll make you a chief petty officer, and no boot camp, and uh, you, you start tomorrow if you want to, next week. Playing the banjo for Uncle Sam, yeah. <laughs> so I got there and I said, well, we don't, what do we do? And they're all sitting around, what do we do? And I said, well, I'll show you. So they said, well, we want you to be the musical director. So uh, upstairs, I told the commander, we want him to be. We want him to be our musical director. So that's what happened. And I was a musical director, and they had a military guy who was called the chief in charge. Well, then he eventually retired, and I became the leader of Country Current. And I had we were a seven-piece musical group, and traveled all over the country, flew to China, flew to Sweden, played for the president at the White House. Got to shake hands with the president. Some of those guys were great guys. Wow. Well, what were some What were some other unique experience or u- unique sights that you got to enjoy with with Country Current? And you said what three decades with them, right? I've been to Japan with the Country Gentleman, but I've never been to China, never been to Sweden, never been all over the United States. And when the Navy band traveled, it was first class. I mean, flew. When we got to the place where we were going, we rented cars and, and trucks, whatever we needed to get the job done. And uh, it was a professional organization, and uh, no volunteers or amateurs allowed. You know? And so it was a way for me to serve my country, do my military obligation, and I was proud of that. I was proud to be a member of the United States Navy, the yeah. best organization in the world, wow. how they call it. Navy man, the world's fine. <laughs> they are. What was the reaction when you'd see the, the these diplomats or these folks from other countries? I'm sure a lot of them had either never heard bluegrass or had uh, had misconceptions about what bluegrass would be. So when they see the U.S. Navy band come out, what would their reaction be to, to getting to hear this music? Well, I liked it. We went to uh, we went to China with with uh, George Bush. Daddy Bush and his wife with Barbara and uh, flew over there in a C-5A along with 46 service agents 
and two black Chevys from Bourbon's down in the bottom of that thing and flew to China. We got there in the middle of the night. It was pitch dark and got out off the plane. There's a guy standing there with machine guns, submachine guns, and a guard standing around there at the airport. And we got into buses and drove into Beijing, China. And there's no street lights or nothing. It's just pitch black. We stayed at the Sheraton in downtown Beijing, and you don't open the blinds. I was way up at the top, maybe the 17th floor or something like that. Open the blinds and look at it. It's just completely black and dark. Not light to be seen anywhere. Next morning, I got up, and there's all these little houses all around for miles, you know. And there's a guy down in the, in the front yard of his house, which is just bare dirt. With a hibachi cooking breakfast. Oh, this is something else. This is something else. Wow. And uh, so we played there for the premier of China and the dignitaries and, and uh, a lot of security, a lot of dogs, bomb sniffing dogs, went all through our stuff. And President Bush put on a Texas style barbecue for those people. Oh, wow. And it had this little Chinese military band there, and they'll forget these tarnished, rusty looking instruments, you know, kind of tatty uniforms. I was used to the baby band, everything being crazy, number one's 50. And uh, anyway, we put on a performance, and they loved it. Everywhere we went, they loved it. They played for President Portilla, the president of Mexico, and uh, various different other dignitary stuff. What well, what are some uh, some other tales that you can tell about some of uh, our United States commanders in chief? What well, what are some of the most interesting stories you have on meeting all these different presidents over the years with your time with Country Current? I'll tell you one more story, then we're gonna have to because I gotta go. I got a big show to play in Las Vegas. You know, and there's a there's a in the back of the White House there's this big circular drive that goes all the way around like this and there's guard shacks it's a beautiful place. the white house is amazing i've been inside of it and it's just something else to see and it has this aura about it and uh george bush would be out there with, with his dog it was a little cocker spaniel by the name of millie he'd be out there walking around with his dog and this is george bush senior right george senior He's a Navy pilot. Flew, flew Avenger torpedo bombers on the carriers in World War II. And he's a Navy guy from head to toe. And we'd pull up in our vans and he'd walk over there. Hey, how you guys doing? <laughs> so glad you're here, man. He grabbed by the Or you want to sit up? And of course, they had somebody to tell us all that. Yeah. He was so congenial and so nice yeah. and uh, wanted to make sure we were happy and we had everything we needed. And when we got to China, of course, we played for him at the White House six or seven times. Before that, we got to China and he saw us on the stage, man, he just lit up in Barbara. But we said, I'm so glad to see you guys. <laughs> Another time we played for Reagan at Camp David. Wow. Man, I tell you, there was something about Ronald Reagan. He glowed. He absolutely glowed. Man, he gave off this aura about him, and he'd come up and so friendly and so glad to see, him, shake hands and stuff like. That. And the chief, one of the chiefs with me, gave him one of our albums. He said, "Oh, for me." <laughs> I met him in the trash when he went back. <laughs> One last question, if you if you don't mind, how how do you think that the, the power of bluegrass could help with uh, diplomacy and and help uh, everybody get along in today's political climate? Well, you know, it's a simpler music that harpens back to better times, and it's more or less violence-free. 
I mean, got Knoxville there and all that, but we don't do that one anymore. <laughs> it's a, it harkens back to a simpler, more American experience, and it is American music. It really is. It was invented here and played here, even though the roots of it go back to, to England and Africa and many other countries. But it's, Amer it's true American music, and I think that the, the more people learn of it and learn to enjoy it and learn to like it, I, I can't tell you the people that I've met to say, I didn't like to eat. I used to like bluegrass. I thought it was corny. You know, singing through your nose, man, all that. He said, I heard so-and-so and it wasn't that way, or I heard the country gentleman, and it wasn't that way, and I love you guys. Yeah. So I think if uh, if more people get exposed to it, I think it could help bring everybody together. You know, there's something special we've been watching on country music. Yeah, the Ken Burns, yeah. Same thing. And look how that's brought people together. And bluegrass is part of that. Well, it was such an honor getting to see, you know, Sonny Osborne induct you into the Bluegrass Music Hall of Fame last night. My hero, man. He always treated me as an equal man. He's been one of my best friends in music for 50 years. Wow. Yeah, man. Well, thank you so much for all your contributions to Bluegrass Music, and thanks for joining us on the podcast today. I appreciate it. It's been an honor. Yeah, it's been my pleasure.